Hello, my name is John Arthur. I am a member here, you know that. Uh, if you've never met me before, say hello to me afterwards. And then, and then you know, I am going to be speaking to you for the next, I don't know, two hours. <laughs> well, I, when Bernice gave me the passage, she said, um, can you read, um, can you do Acts 2? Uh, and two things happened to me. First, I thought, wow, that's quite a lot. Um, and the second thing that happened to me was thinking, oh dear, I've been given this one. Was there ever a more purple passage in the whole of the Bible than this one? Was there ever a greater source of fighting in the whole of the Bible than this one? Right. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like a blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them, and all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now, they were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard them speaking in his or her own language. Utterly amazed, they asked, are not all these men who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in his own native language? Parthians, Medes, and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia, Pamlifia, Egypt, and parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Christians and Arabs, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, what does it mean? Some, however, made fun of them and said, they've had too much wine. And Peter stood up with the eleven and raised his voice and addressed the crowd, fellow Jews and all you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully what I say these men are not drunk, as you suppose. It is only nine in the morning. No, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. And then he, then he gives them the first Christian sermon, and it's, it's a cracker, right? And if we had time, we could, we could just read it to each other, and, and that would be enough, and we could all go home. But I'm not going to do that. Um, so I'm going to skip to um, the, the closing bit of Peter's sermon, where he says, Therefore, let all Israel be assured that this God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ, and when the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, the promises for you and your children, and this is our bit, and for all those who are far off. That's you and me. For all whom the Lord our God will call. And a wee bit at the end. Um, they devoted themselves to the apostles, blah, 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 selling their possessions and goods they gave to anyone as he had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts, broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all people, committing themselves to the teaching, to fellowship, to breaking bread, to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe and wonder and there were many miracles. Right, have you been a Christian a uh, half decent length of time? You have heard this passage uh, spoken to you uh, thousands of times, because it's a biggie, um, and it's, it's, there are kind of three things that people do with it, okay? So, and you, when, I, when I say this morning, the, the charismatics, um, I'm not saying that in the pejorative, okay? I am quite a charismatic sort of person, I'm, as, as will be obvious when, when we talk about this Holy Spirit. So, when you hear the charismatics, please hear it in the neutral, I just mean the people who are at that end of the Christian spectrum, you know, who want, who want things a bit more fireworky. Um, I don't mean to, to put them down, okay? And likewise, when I say the conservatives, I might 
I'm quite conservative myself, so I might, be, I might not be saying that in a negative. I might just be saying that's, that's another bit of Christianity that has a slightly different feel to it, okay? Um, and when I say the hippies, you'll, you'll know who I mean, right? <laughs> the charismatics, this passage, and say, if it's not like that, it's not Christianity. If it's not like that, if it's not fireworks and thunder and awe and amazing and all these all wonderful things, um, then it's not the true church. Kind of saying to the rest of us who, who would not be entirely comfortable with that every Sunday, we're not the right church. We're not the true church, okay? So, so there's a case to answer there. The conservatives want to take this passage and talk about the authority of the, the apostles and the authority of the church and how the church must have order and must have rules and must, and, and, you know, and of course God's in charge, but, but, but uh, that's the way it is. And the hippies, including me, want to point out that people can tend to cut this meal up into pieces because the bit at the end basically says that they, they, they started a form of communism um, and, and, and one, it didn't go well, and two, it didn't last, which whenever humanity has tried to develop communism, that's always been the case. Um, so those are the directions I, those are the directions I could go in if you wanted, if you, let's have a straw poll. Which do you, which do you think I'll do? Well, I'll go for the, there's not enough Holy Spirit in this place, or the, we need to, you know, get back to the first church, or we need to, you know, all start selling the houses and buying some big, big commune somewhere and, and wearing lots of linen. Um, it's up to you. I'm not, I'm not actually going to go in any of those directions. Um, but... We need to take this passage seriously because it is, it is an inaugural passage. It is one of the ways in which the church to which we're a part of, sitting in this morning, was formed. And it's a scary thing, the way it was formed. But I want um, to move in a, in a, in a couple of di- different directions. I'm going to say four things. I'm actually only going to say three because the fourth one is going to be the subject of next week because you got me again next week. Then. I'm going to say four things. Um, I'm going to say... When people want to sort of froth at the mouth and say, let's get back to the early church, I want to say, be careful. Be careful what you wish for. When the charismatics want to get all excited about the blessing of the Holy Spirit in this, I want, I want to say, Christianity is about the power of love. It's not about the love of power. And they are different. I want to say that this passage doesn't contain enough Jesus. So we need to look to him to understand it. Um, And I want to say that the Holy Spirit, as is the case here at the inauguration of the Christian church, falls on community, not on individuals. Okay? So that's that's, that's roughly what I'm going to say. This idea of the Holy Spirit falling, this is the whole, the whole thing with this. It's just like they're all just sitting there. They're at Pentecost. A Pentecost, for those who like these geeky things, is the feast, is the uh, Shabbat. It's the Jewish festival of the Feast of Weeks. What you do is you count off seven weeks from the first harvest to the end of the, har- at the, end of the last harvest in terms of how farming these things go, what, when the wheat, when the barley, when the maize, whatever comes up. It takes, and God has ordained seven Seven sevens, seven weeks, 49 days essentially, after the first harvest, hold for me a festival. It's called the Festival of Weeks or the Festival of the, of the Ingathering or the Festival of various other things. And so the early Christians were still Jews and they were still celebrating the festival. And the reason that all these people from Egypt and Pamphylia and Cappadocia and all these places 
Did you notice, I only noticed myself, I feel very smug about this now that I have noticed, which is what preachers always do. They, put, they, put, they, they make it sound like they always knew this stuff and they were just really clever. Um, there are 12 nations gathered at Pentecost. God's got a thing about 12. He's got a thing about the 12 tribes of Israel. He's got a thing about the 12 disciples. He's got a thing. 12 nations, a new Israel made up of the world. Abrahamic prophecy being delivered to your door, courtesy of the Holy Spirit. The world turns up, and it's formed of 12 parts, and God says Israel has been extended. Okay? The reason they were there was because they, they had been separated by various persecutions of the Jews, which happened all through their history. And so they're all over the known world, but, but they come to Jerusalem for Shavuot, for the Festival of Weeks. They come to Jerusalem for Passover. They come to Jerusalem. Just like modern-day uh, Islamic folk have this thing where they need to go to Mecca, um, so it's a bit of a copy of this, because the Jews have this thing where they need to go to Jerusalem. That's the, that's the place to go and be close to God. So that's why they're there. And so the 50 days, the Penta, 50, 50, whatever, Costas, whatever that becomes in the Greek, the 50-day festival, the, f- the seven weeks plus one, put them all there. And our friends, the young Christians, were there too, because they didn't know what else to do. And anyway, Jesus had said to them, I need you to stay in Jerusalem, which was a bit hairy for them because it, they, they weren't very popular there. Um, and then, you know the rest, right? I've just read it for you. The Holy Spirit falls, I mean, really falls big time on these people, and suddenly they're, you know, they're no longer cowering, they're no longer anything. Peter's no longer a sort of a fisherman, he's suddenly this very erudite preacher who knows exactly what to say to whom, and, and 3,000 people become Christians that day. That's pretty big evangelism, you can't really fault that, right? 3,000 people were killed by Moses for worshipping the golden calf. God replaced them on the day of Pentecost, Okay? Let me tell you a story. This is going to seem completely unrelated. I'm going to tell you a story um, of the Holy Spirit falling uh, in our society a few weeks ago. Stay with me, all right? So, as, as is obvious even from hearing me just now, and as is obvious, uh, I am not from this part of Britain. I am from an, another part of Britain, uh, a bit more favored by God than, <laughs> than, than this bit. At least when you look at the scenery, maybe not when you meet the people. Right, um, I got it. I was in Newcastle the other day, and I got in a taxi to take me to a business meeting. It was going to be a reasonably sort of you know lengthy journey, and so I think I always feel that taxi drivers deserve the benefit of my uh, you know company whenever we're in these situations. So, so I'm not sure he would have agreed, but I, as I got in, as I got into his taxi, I said to him, um, "How's your day going today?" And he said. All the better now that you're here. Um, but he said it in a Glasgow accent, and, and the reason he's, the reason he was saying that was because he was. It's a well-met, hail and hearty fellow greeting that Scots give to each other. So I've encountered another Scot in this foreign land, and my my day is made better purely. I mean, it's total racism, purely because you're Scottish. This is going to be good, uh, and it, and trust me, it was good. It was a, this conversation I'm about to relate to you was a gift of God, to me, not not necessarily to him. We spoke of many things. We spoke of, um, you know, how he came to be living in England and all that sort of stuff. And I discovered in the conversation that um, Dean's taxi driver guy, whose name I never actually got, I meant to research it this morning, but, uh, and you can, um, was an albophile, right? This is someone who, who is really passionately in love with Scotland. I mean, you know, and they can get, I mean, 
Um, as indicated by the following story, he was trying, he pointed out a house, he said, see that house there, see that house there? I'm trying my best to get a blue plaque on that. I said, well, he's trying to get a blue plaque on it. He said, that is the last place with, from which King Malcolm III of Scotland left before the English ambushed him and killed him. Um, it's, it's proven a bit difficult, though, because if I get, I get a blue plaque on there to King Malcolm, which the English killed, then the Northumbrians would have to confess that this used to be Scotland, which it did. The, the bottom, bottom half of Scotland went a bit further down in the old days. And they're not so keen. It's like, <laughs> not that we bear a grudge or anything, right? So, so um, and he, uh, he also, unlike, uh, everyone thinks, everyone who's Scottish does, and it's not true, um, he plays the bagpipes, which I'm, I'm in awe of because it's an amazing instrument when it's played well. Um, and I, I got a sense he was a bit ex-military. He talked about para, parachuting, and I didn't think it was a hobby. I feel like he had probably come from that. Um, and, the, and the bagpipes probably played a, played a part in that because obviously in the Scottish regiments, there's a lot of that going on. Um, and as everybody knows, what's the date today? 20, 23rd. So in two days' time, the most important festival in all of Scotland's mind is about to begin, okay? And, and were we not in COVID times, I would be helping you celebrate it with me like we've done before. So Burns Night. And pipers are like Santa Claus impersonators. They, they've got to get the work when they can get it, right? And Burns Night is the, is the night when you get work when you're a piper. Um, I said, have you got any gigs on? He said, no, well, the COVID's kind of ruined everything. He says, I'm just going to have a private uh, one in, in, in my loft. And I thought, well, okay. So, after, oh, so I've converted my loft into it. It's a really nice bar. Don't read too much into that. Really nice bar. And a wee place to meet. So I'm gathering a few friends and we'll cut a few haggis and do all that. I said, you know, I only converted it this year. Not that that was, that was an easy thing. I said, oh, tell me about that. He said, well, here's the thing, right? I paid this bill. I'll, I'll do it in the vernacular and then, I'll, and then I'll translate for you. I paid this builder 12 and a half grand for, for half a deposit to come and convert my loft. Bampot ran away and spent it in cocaine. Never gave me nothing. When I went back to see him, he said, they told me, told me to day one. And if I didn't day one, he was going to day over me and my wife. So just to help you. The tradesman whom I commissioned to extend my loft turned out to be somewhat of a rapscallion. He took my money, he spent it on drugs, and when I asked him to either do my loft or give me my money back, he threatened me and my family with violence. So, so and this, this felt like it might take a dark turn. I said, so what did you do about that? And he, I'd, I'd already discovered he was from Partick, which is... Um, if you know Scotland, if you know I'm from Paisley, which is bad enough, but if you're from Partick, mm, it's, it's flavorful. Um, and I was thinking he was going to tell me about, you know, dark alleys and lead pipes. He says, when he messed with me, he picked the wrong guy to mess with, which, again, to translate, he, sh he should have understood my character before he tried to defraud me. I said, so what did, so what did you do? He said, I went to the police. I said, what did they say? And he said, well, it was total rubbish. He said, they said it was a civil affair and there was nothing to do with them and I needed to, needed to pursue it. I said, but this guy's threatening me and my wife. And he said, well, you know, that's your word against him. To translate once more, um, the police were no use and said they wouldn't pursue it. Um, I said, so what do you do? What did you do? He said, I bagpiped him. <laughs> In case you think there's a kind of Scottish mafia, <laughs> well, that's a euphemism for some sort of... <laughs> Grizzly death. Um, he's, he just, he took his bagpipes, he put his, put his kilt on and he took his bagpipes and he stood outside this guy's head office with his wife standing there with a sign on it saying, RCS building robbed us. And he played 
his bagpipes to annoy the life out of this guy. I said, what happened? He said, well, he called the police. I said, and what did they say? They said, well, I need to move on. I said, you need to move on? If you do your job, I wouldn't need to be here. It's your fault I'm having to do this because if you, if you, this guy's taking money off me and threatening us and you're not doing anything about it. And so they got my mood. I said, so what, did you do this? I just went back the next day. <laughs> but of course, social media being what it is, the newspapers turned up the next day. So the Newcastle Chronicle was there the next day and the police who were in a, in a speed trap van saw this and they all bundled out to sort of make sure nothing was going to happen. And, uh, and he told the story to the, to the newspapers and that fed the social media. I said, by the third day, we'd found 30 other people that this guy had robbed. So what we did was we all got together and we formed a community. Uh, and uh, uh, Russell D. Hunter, I don't know if you know who that is, he's a comedian on telly, um, got behind it and we got news coverage and we, f- and we, and we, we, we got a lawyer and we, and we saw her. I said, I'm taking him to court, I'm, got, I'm seeing him on Monday. Looking forward to it, he said. I said, well, you know, what happened? He said, well, he said, we managed to get, you know, somebody, if, it's, if it gave somebody like, you know, if somebody a thousand for a bathroom or something, we managed to get that back for them. But, um, you know, um, when it came to mind, he said, if you give me the time, because it's 12 and a half thousand pounds, if you give me the time, I'll get you the money. He said, and I figured the only way he was going to get that money was to do the same to somebody else as he'd done to me. And I wasn't having that. He needed his day in court and so did I. So I told him to, told him to do one. I told him I'll see him in court. And he, <coughs> he's in court Monday, tomorrow. They're in court to, do, to deal with this. And as is my wont when I'm with taxi drivers or various other people, I have no qualms at all, as you know, about bringing the Almighty into the conversation. And as I said this, I suddenly realized how true it was. I said, God must be really proud of you. For what? <coughs> Excuse me. what you did for those people. And I meant it. And I was thinking about a, a verb to describe what this man had done. And I've decided it's Pentecosting. He Pentecosted. The man who drew his lineage from the king was unjustly treated. He used nonviolent means to draw attention to the unrighteous. And in so doing, he drew around himself those who were in need of the compassion of God. And he created a community out of them. And that community created power, and that power changed society. That's Pentecosting, that is. But he doesn't know God from creative apples. But, but I told him, I told him the Almighty was pleased with him. Because I think God would be with that. That's Pentecosting. And I think in order to get our heads around how this passage works, we need to become Pentecostals. Now, obviously, somebody took that phrase and made it mean something else, which is a wee bit tricky. But I think we should be stealing it back. I think we should be looking for Pentecosting in our behavior right here and right now. But there's a couple of warnings that come with that. So the first one is, for those who hanker after the first century church, be careful what you wish for. Because this, this amazing thing that happened, I mean, we should be students of the Bible. We shouldn't just quote it, we should study it. And because I've studied it for you, I can help you this morning. It doesn't make me a superior intellect. It just means I've taken the time. When you track what happened to this church, the thing that happened, the thing that started in glory faded. And there's an issue there. When you look at this Jerusalem church and what happened to it, it faded. Let's take a quick whistle-stop tour of ways in which it faded. 
The first way in which it faded was within a couple of days of Pentecost, Ananias and Sapphira are dead on the ground and Peter is standing over them and none of us knows what to do with that story. But there were no more 3,000s joining. In fact, the Bible says everybody was too terrified when to lie about what you put in the offering caused you to be struck dead in this church. That feels like a bum note to me. <laughs> and we're never comfortable with that story. But there it is. It just sits and haunts us. That's like an Old Testament God turning up. And, and they went with it. But still, the kingdom grew and that was fine. The disciples... I think made, made a catastrophic error. This is my opinion. I always get shouted down in Christian meetings when I give this opinion, but I've got the microphone and you can't stop me. <laughs> Consider this. Consider that on the night of the Mount of Olives, on the, on, the, on the night when Jesus is going to Gethsemane, on the night before the crucifixion, when Jesus is trying his utmost to give these people a sense of what he's about, he says, the, in Luke's gospel, he says the following things, Luke 22. A dispute also arose amongst them as to which of them was considered the greatest, something that was kind of on their mind quite a lot, actually. And Jesus used to be ticked off whenever they did this. They used to do it in secret because they knew he didn't like it. Jesus said to them, let me, let me make Jesus Scottish for the purposes of this. I think it works better. Look, the kings of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those who exercise authority over them call themselves benefactors. You're not to be like that. Instead, the greatest among you should be like the youngest, and the one who rules like the one who serves. For who is greater, the one who is at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who's at the table, but I'm telling you, I've come as one who serves? That's what Jesus said to them. Fifty days later, because they've got 3,000 people and the catering arrangements are difficult, the apostles say, oh, do you know what? We can't possibly forswear for the preaching of the Word and the ministry in order to wait at tables, we'll pick some worthy people, or what I like to call ordinary Christians. We'll pick some ordinary Christians, and they can go and wait at the table, and we'll go off and do the important stuff. Absolute own goal, because Jesus said, don't do that. Jesus said, form a community that's based on service. The youngest shall be the the greatest, the greatest were the one who serves. I've come as one who serves. And he built that in John's gospel. He built that into a treatise on the, com the command that he gave to love, and that love would be demonstrated by, by that. So, so, no, not, and the difficulty is that what creeped into the life of the first century church, I'm already sensing this sermon's going to take so long that I'm probably going to do the first bit, but never mind. I can speak next week some more. So, we were under-rehearsed, right? What that did was it put some poison in the water. Because if you set yourself apart as being the ones who are the important ones who do the ministry and all that sort of stuff, then obviously your opinion matters more than anybody else's. And if you do that long enough, what happens is what will creep in, what did creep in, was the Back to Egypt Brigade. So the Pharisees who joined the Christians and the strict Jews who joined the Christians said, um, thing is, it's about the Jews, okay? It's not about anybody else. And um, and so it started to become quite exclusive quite quickly. Meanwhile, there was persecution came from this guy, Saul, who was a right riot. And then, and then, of course, he goes off and gets converted. And he makes his way back from Damascus to Jerusalem. And he wants to meet the, the original Christians. And he wants to presumably apologize for everything he's done. But also to meet them. And, to, and, and, and they won't have him. They're scared of him. And he's like, oh, this, this could be a double bluff. 
You know, where's all the, the men of Israel? I'm telling you now, this is, you know, repent and be baptized. Like, this one wee figure who says he's been, become a Christian, why don't you just investigate it? Why are you find him? And Barnabas, I love Barnabas to death. Barnabas goes and gets, because the Jerusalem church won't meet him. Barnabas goes and gets Paul and, and then offers to represent him and say, look, look here he is. Look, look, I've, I've listened to his story. It's real. We need to listen to him. And so they did. And then grudgingly, they sort of warmly, warmly welcomed Paul. They never warmly welcomed Paul ever in the Jerusalem church. He was a thorn in their flesh for a very long time for a very good reason. Because the minute that he was there and he was accepted, he started doing his thing. He started doing what Paul does, causing trouble. And so he's caused so much trouble that the Greek and Jews are making a plot to kill him. And the Jerusalem church, which is full of these thousands of converts and has got all this, you know, important stuff to do, is a wee bit perturbed by that. And maybe the people who've set themselves apart as the ministry group, you know, the leaders, maybe they have a quiet conversation over here. How do you solve a problem like Maria? What are we going to do about this guy? And so maybe someone sneaks, sneaks up to Paul and says, we've had a wee chat, Paul. And we think it would be better for you and for everybody else because of your safety if maybe you went home to Tarsus, which is what happened. And we don't hear from him for a decade because of that act. Conservative, you see. Don't rock the boat. But the boat was being rocked, and the boat carried on being rocked. And so they, so they continued to, you know, um, to, ha to have to put up with stuff. Um, and when all the persecuted Jews had gone off into the world, um, they, they sort of well, they evangelized. But what's obvious, and it says it in the text if you want to look at it, what's obvious is that the, the evangelists who went out from this Jerusalem church were quite exclusive. They only evangelized Jews. Because I'm afraid they still thought that it was only for the Jews. But the, the people who went to the church, and you can read this in your Bibles, the people who went to the church... Um, in Antioch, there weren't even many, many Jews around. There were all these clever Greeks. And so they said, ah, stuff it, we'll just evangelize them. So they did. So they evangelized the Greeks, and the Greeks were welcomed the gospel, and they, and they formed a church, the, the place where Christians were first called Christians. It's the church at Antioch. Um, and the Jerusalem church heard about this. Now, you have to make up your mind. Obviously, I'm, I'm painting a slightly sardonic picture, but you have to make up your mind whether they were pleased or worried by this. But they sent a delegation, which to me seems worried. But uh, my guy Barnabas is in the delegation, so, we're, so it's all good because Barnabas is a hero. So Barnabas and a bunch of other people make their way down to, down to Antioch to investigate what's going on. And what Barnabas discovers, it's, it's brilliant. It's brilliant. This is great. Loads of people are becoming Christians. And so he just stays. Um, but these are Greeks. And, of course, you know from your history that the Greeks were fabulously well-educated, rich. Um, and, you know, we know about Greek philosophy. You know all these things, right? So, a bit like me, they love a good argument. And Barnabas is thinking, to, I'm making this stuff up, but it's in the text. and The truth, the fact, I'll tell you, is in the text. I'm obviously embellishing. Barnabas um, says to himself, where on earth am I going to find somebody good enough at arguing to talk to these people? And then it comes to him. I know a guy. So he goes to Tarsus and he searches for Paul and he finds Paul and he, said, he convinces Paul to come to Antioch. And when Paul comes to Antioch, Paul finds his natural groove. And he and Barnabas spend a year there and the church really thrives there 
and it's really wonderful. And then the church is so thrilled with what they have done that the Holy Spirit, we're told, tells the church to set aside Barnabas and Paul and set them free. And so then we get what's called the first missionary journey where Paul and Barnabas go off and they make loads of other churches in the Near East. And they go to the Gentiles and they have all these big adventures that you can read about in Acts. And it's all fantastic, right? Um, and then they spin around, they do all that, and then they come back to the church at Antioch um, to tell everybody what happened. And, and it must take a while because it's an amazing story. Right, the Holy Spirit just going nuts all over the place. Uh, and I'm telling everybody what happened. It's all, all wonderful. Now, this might be two stories. It might be one. I'll make it one for the purposes of this to shorten this otherwise rather long sermon. Because the Bible's not clear, and Paul tells us this story in the past tense in retrospect in Galatians, so we're not, not sure. But another wee bunch of heavies, you can tell them a bit anti the Jerusalem church. Another wee bunch of heavies from the Jerusalem church come down to find out what's going on. Um, and what they want to say is, these new Christians need to be circumcised. These new Christians need to become full Orthodox Jews. And it says, I love it in the Bible's, in the Bible's brief, it says, this brought them into sharp dispute with Paul and Barnabas. Too right sharp dispute. I've just been busting my bones all over the known Near East, making churches and being st uh, stoned and flogged and driven from place to place and shipwrecked and hunted by wolves and threatened all flipping day. And then you're saying, I needn't have bothered because they just need to become Orthodox Jews. You can, you picked the wrong guy to mess with. I'm telling you that right now. <laughs> And so it doesn't get solved, and you, you read the tension in the story, you read the tension, it doesn't get solved, and so the delegation goes back to Jerusalem, to the mother church, where they have saints preservers, the first Christian council, the first talking shop about what's going to be orthodox and right and what isn't. But Paul and Barnabas win the day, and Peter defends them fairly adequately to say, we shouldn't put the, the, the yoke of Moses onto these people. They should be free. And then they give them a few rules. Not a mention of Jesus in that first letter. Ridiculous. Give them a few rules, and, that, and, and, and that'll, that'll kind of do. But when Peter comes down to visit Antioch, because it's a wonderful thing, what's going on? Yeah, sure, you had a big boom moment in Jerusalem when you created the mother church. But the one over here in Antioch is the businessman. It's really working. So even Peter comes to visit, and when Peter comes to visit, he's pretty impressed. But then a wee bunch of heavies get sent from James from the Jerusalem church to come and see, and then Peter starts to not associate with the Gentiles, and he starts to back off from them, and he starts not having dinner with them, and he starts being a bit about purity laws and cleanliness, and back to Egypt, back to Egypt, back to Egypt. And Paul has to tell him to this, and Paul, Paul only gives us his version of the story. So he might be slightly, you know, like my taxi driver, he might be talking it up a bit. But Paul tells the Galatians, I told him to his face. He was, he was so clearly in the wrong. Why would, why would he do this? Why would, and it's, it's because the Holy Spirit at Pentecost was insufficient. It wasn't enough. And the church that it created had become too conservative, orthodox, exclusive controlling, interested in keeping its own survival. And you have to ask yourself a question, and this is where all the theologians in the room just faint with horror. You have to ask yourself a question whether Peter didn't get the job done, and that's why God had to tap up Paul. Because the Jerusalem church didn't get the job done, but Paul did. 
And on his second missionary journey, he creates loads more churches. And, and it, the, the thing that we have is, is a combination, okay? And so, if you want the first century church, because it's some sort of, some sort of template for power for our church, just be careful what you wish for, because that, the church I can see there is just like all the other churches I know. It's a complicated human affair with compromise and difficulty. And I want to say, I would say at the end that the, the churches in the New Testament are not beacons on a hill to Christians. They're lighthouses on the rocks. As, in, as much goes wrong with them as goes right with them. And some crackpot idea that all we need to do is, is, is foam up this Holy Spirit thing again and everything will be wonderful is the politics of power. Let me tell you about a book I read. I didn't read it because I stopped reading it because it annoyed me so much. I won't tell you who wrote it. I won't tell you where it was from. You can guess yourself. You're all Christians. You read these sort of things all the time. Some of you like them. I don't want to insult you. I read this book. It was a, bo- a book about how the church will go out into the world and spread light and life into the world. Uh, and the, the guy who was writing it talked about um, basically, and it was a pretty thinly veiled thing he did, he basically said, we are the Church of Pentecost. He basically drew allusions to what was happening in his place to what happened in Pentecost. And, and, and you, know, you know the signals, we're the real church and you're not. That was the signals. And, and I found this difficult. I read 13,000 words of this book. I estimated how many words I read before I stopped. I gave him, I gave him a chance. I read 13,000 words. And the thing is that this was a book about the power of the Holy Spirit. And that was all he wanted to do. It was a monoculture. He just wanted to say it's all about power. And, when, and so the God in, his, God in his view convicts, challenges, you know, make, you know pushes, pushes people out. And the God in his view of things, the Holy Spirit in his view of things, is quite a sort of toxic masculine force who's always pressuring people and, 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 and landing on ordinary people's lives and doing miracles with them and then sort of running off cape swirling in the wind to do something else. Um, and all I wanted, all I needed to, f- to forgive this guy because I'm, I'm, not, I'm not against charismatics. And, and I'm delighted that people were healed. I'm absolutely amazed of the, the things that they were able to do was, were brilliant. But I need, a, I need it to be whole. And in 13,000 words on a book about the church going out into the world, Jesus was not mentioned once. And I struggle with that. Unsurprisingly, in 13,000 words, the word love was also not mentioned once because they'd taken the Pentecostal idea and turned it into a love of power rather than understanding that the church is about the power of love. So, I'm, I'm struggling with that, if that's how we use this passage. But I do, I do want the Holy Spirit to come on the church, and I do want wonderful things to happen. One of the things I want to recognize, however, is that um, Luke is not the only authority on the arrival of the Holy Spirit. And Pentecost, despite what we think, is not the, not the first time the Holy Spirit was given to the church. Now, if you're a student of John's gospel, you will know that um, unlike Luke who says to the disciples, um, you need to wait in Jerusalem for 50 days and then the Holy Spirit will come with an amazing bang. In John's gospel, Jesus just comes and gives the Spirit himself. John 20, on the evening of the first day of the week, when the disciples were together with the doors locked, this is the first day after the resurrection, not the 50th day after the resurrection. The disciples were together with the doors locked, and when it says that, I don't think it means the 12. Don't make that mistake. I think it means the, the, all of them. 
Uh, with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood amongst them and said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord, because they hadn't believed the women who told them that he'd been resurrected. But anyway, we'll leave that to one side. And again, Jesus said, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. Receive the Holy Spirit. If, any, if you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. I would like the Holy Spirit to come on my church, but I would like it to come on my church in the presence of Jesus. I'd like Jesus to be there when it happens. I'd like Jesus to be the focus when it happens. I'd like Jesus to be the center. I'd like Jesus to be in plain view. I'd like the person who brings me the Holy Spirit to be Jesus breathing on me. Not a hint of aggression in this passage. No tongues of fire, no violent winds, no shaking, no earthquakes, no nothing. Just Jesus breathing on them. Breathe on me, breath of God. Fill me with life anew that I may love the way that you love and do what I see you do. Breathe on me, breath of God. Until my heart is pure, until my will is one with yours to do and to endure. I want my Holy Spirit to be the breath of Jesus. That's what I want. I'm all for the fireworks. I just need somebody beside me that I can trust when they're going off. Last thing to say, because I'm going to say more on this next week. The Bible is full of people like Paul and Peter and a whole bunch of other heroes that we sort of, you know, aggrandize to our discredit. But the Bible's full of people in whom it's clear that the Spirit dwells, right? So that they can do the crazy, crazy, wonderful things that they do. And, and, and I sort of wish I was one of them, and I kind of wish, I'm kind of glad I'm not, but you know what I mean. The, um, but when the Holy Spirit falls, test me on this. Go and read your Bible. Test me on this. When the Holy Spirit falls... She falls on groups. He falls on families. It falls on communities. It never falls on an individual. When God tried to convince Peter that the Gentiles were acceptable, you got this amazing story of the conversion of Cornelius. Peter goes and tries to do his big sermon thing again. The Holy Spirit says, enough of that big guy, and just falls on the whole family. And they're all converted in one go, and they're all baptized, and they all become Christians, which causes a great deal of trouble for Peter, because the people in his church who don't want these sorts of people to become Christians are very angry with him for that. There's always discord built into the thing. When the Holy Spirit falls, it falls on communities. So I want to say, if we are a church that wants the Holy Spirit to fall on us, then the homework that I would do is not, don't hear me criticizing you. It's not to become a community worthy of God, worthy of the Holy Spirit is to become a community longing for God. And that's evidenced in the way that we do community, and I want to talk, talk about that next week. What has the man said? The man has said, said four things. If you're looking for the first century church, be careful what you wish for. 
It's in many ways just as complicated as our church. It's not an ideal. It's not a romantic fiction. It's full of all the difficulties that you would expect to see and quite a lot of compromises. And the conservative, the controlling, the, the orthodox wasn't the way God created Christianity in the world. He avoided that and did something else instead. Don't let him avoid us because of the same sins. The Holy Spirit is not about the love of power, it's about the power of love. And we have to be a people of love so that the Holy Spirit gets to flex her muscles, flex his muscles in this place. It's flexed through love. We have to be a people of love. Jesus was present at the giving of the Holy Spirit. I want the Holy Spirit to arrive in the company of Jesus. And the Holy Spirit falls on communities, and I want to be a community that is longing for that so that it will happen. The, ch the early church in Jerusalem, and most of the others as well, with the possible exception of Thessalonica, are not beacons on a hill. They are lighthouses on the rocks. I'm glad they did what they did, but the Holy Spirit charges us with doing something else. Let's not get romantic about Pentecost. And I'd like us to get the bagpipes out. I'd like us to work out what bagpiping looks like here. Um, and do it with all passion so the Holy Spirit can, as, there's an expression in Scotland which you would be unable to comprehend, it's called gain it laldi. When someone gees it laldi, is the equivalent of um, pulling out all the stops, I think that's the English version of it, when the, when the organist is, is going to go, my chains fell off, my heart was, they pull out all the, the wee things on the to make sure the organ's full volume and all the pipes are working and everything's coming. So, we need to be a bunch of people who anticipate that and want that. I think that would be good. But it, but it comes with this great responsibility. And the, and, the, and, the, and the only watchwoman, the only watchman in that scenario has to be Jesus. And it must be love. And then we'll be fine. Because we'll do what we're made for. So, I want to bless you, hopefully, with those thoughts. More thoughts next week. <laughs>